Well, welcome back to, to Acts. We are continuing to move along here in a very slow glacial pattern. But there's a lot to cover here. And uh, those of you that are watching online, never fear, we will get through the book of Acts uh, and uh, get everything accomplished here. But we are, we are at a point where we are at chapter 7, and we kind of introduced it last time with the, the story of Stephen as one of the seven deacons who, uh, well, we call them deacons, uh, for just to use that term that we're familiar with, but that's not the term used in Acts 6 as they were selected to take care of a lot of the physical details of the church in Jerusalem. But uh, Stephen is, is listed as the first one here um, in verse 8 of chapter 6, just to go back to that. And um, it says that he was full of faith and power and did great wonders and signs among the people. Now keep in mind that the, con the conflict that we're entering into here, as Stephen kind of goes far beyond a role of a, a physical servant in the church, uh, he now becomes, in a sense, a, an evangelist, um, maybe not even a prophet or not an apostle, but more like a prophet by what he does. He really um, jets forward with what he does before the, the council of the Jews in proclaiming a truth that they are not able to see and understand. And that puts him, all, as we're going to see, kind of in, the, in almost the role of a prophet. He's, he's not a deacon. He's not a pastor. Uh, he's not even, in a sense, a, an apostle, but more of like a, a, an Old Testament prophet in the indictment that he lays down before the, the Jews in a unique way, and it's going to cost him his life, and he becomes the first martyr here within the setting of the church. And so we, we brought it down to where he was arrested. He, in verse 15 of chapter 6, he's brought before the council. This is the same council that John and Peter had been brought before, and the same council before whom Christ himself had appeared and who had sentenced Christ to death. And so it's a pretty serious situation. The Sanhedrin that, um, that he's come before now, we're probably, we're at some point in the, let's say the mid-30s, um, in terms of the chronology of the book of Acts. If we take 31 AD as, as the beginning of the story in Acts with Christ's death and the beginning of the church, we have come forward. Most commentators feel, uh, not having any specific reference here, mid-30s, which could put us anywhere from 34 to 37 or so AD. Hard, hard to, uh, to tell that, but let's just call it the, the mid-30s AD in terms of a reference. The church has been growing and developing. As a little bit of a background to what um, is happening here and to understand, I think, better Stephen's sermon or the address that he gives as Luke records it, Let's back up just a, a moment, and let me give a, a little bit of a background in regard to the, the setting of the Jews and Rome and the land of Judea in the first century period here. Uh, the, the Jews that were occupying the land and under, under whose, um, they were under the, the, the Roman rule, um, they had basically three beliefs that kind of tied them together or they, they agreed on. Now, we, we have moved forward. If you remember, we've just gone through Daniel 11. We talked about the time of the Maccabees in the, uh, the second century BC and the Maccabean revolt against the Greeks and the uh, Seleucid Empire, the uh, time of Antiochus Epiphanes and the Maccabees who rose to power 
The Maccabees gave rise to a, a ruling dynasty called Hasmoneans. I'll, I'll go ahead and put that on, on the board here just for a historical reference. Uh, their descendants, who kind of ruled Judea, are, was a Hasmonean dynasty. Uh, uh, this, they descended uh, from the Maccabees. They were not a very good uh, ruling class of people among the Jews. These were the Jewish uh, ruling leaders, along with the high priests and, and all. And I've, I've, I've mentioned previously how uh, in the year 63 B.C., the Roman general Pompey the Great came into the land at the invitation of the Jews. Pompey the Great was a Roman general. He'd already an Rome had already annexed Syria. Remember, we talked about that annexation, uh, and uh, it, it kind of figures into, again, the, the Daniel story, because when Rome annexed Syria, the king of the, the, king of the north, okay, look, bringing in the Daniel story here for a moment, the king of the north, uh, that becomes Rome. And um, in, in 63 B.C., a Roman general, Pompey, who's in the area of Syria, the, the king of the north land, is invited into the land of Judea, Jerusalem, because the Jews can't get along under the Hasmoneans. But Rome really doesn't annex completely all of the Holy Land at that time. They continue to allow the Hasmoneans to rule, and more or less as client kings. And they eventually put, uh, Rome puts on, on the throne Herod the Great, this man named Herod, who is the Idumean leader uh, he's not really Jewish. He comes from the uh, southern regions below Judea, and he founds the Herodian dynasty. This is the Herod the Great, who is the king when Jesus is born. And he, remember, he the, in the story, he um, because of his fear, he kills all the the firstborn uh, sons uh, in an effort to to kill the Messiah. And so Herod rules as a client of Rome. Rome hasn't completely annexed it, but then. Herod dies. He dies in the year 6, um, 6 B.C. I'll just put it there, and, and uh, he dies. His, the land of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, the whole area that we call Israel, uh, the promised land, is divided among his three sons. All right, this is where we get the name of the television movie, My Three Sons. No, not really, but he has three sons. Now, I'm not going to to go through all of these um, sons, that's not necessarily important to the story, except for the, the um, there, he has one son whose name is Archelaus, and Archelaus receives Jerusalem, Judea, and, and that area, and he is not a very good ruler administrator. And the Jews petition Rome to go ahead with a full annexation of the land, or at least of that part. And so they do. Um, and so we, we move to about, let's say, the year 4, maybe 6 AD. And this is many years after 63 when Pompey has kind of come into the land and Judea has become a client state of Rome. Uh, Herod rules, he builds up Jerusalem. And then his son uh, really kind of uh, drops the ball, and the Jews ask to become a full. Uh, colony, if you will, of Rome. Now, why is that important? That's important because it, it is the final annexation, and that is when we find 
um, the, uh, something that takes place, if you were would to turn back to Luke chapter 2, you will find that at the time of Christ's birth, as Luke, re- he ties it to a, an event in Luke chapter 2 that uh, is connected to um, a governor named Quirinius. And um, in verse 1 of Luke 2, it came to pass in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world would be registered. This census took place where Quirinius was governing Syria. Quirinius is a Roman governor. And so he issues a census. And the only reason for a census is for taxation, money. And this is what ties into the story of Mary and Joseph, Christ's birth. And this happens after the, uh, the son of um, Herod, Archelaus, has to abdicate or, or is removed because of incompetence. And, Rome, and Judea becomes a full client of Rome. Now, why is that important? This is important because we're talking here about something called the land. And it's the, the holy land. It is um, the promised land. It is the land given to Abraham and his descendants. And the land is important. So we come back to where we are now with the time of in Acts. All right. The Jews, for all their disagreements, at least agreed on three things. Number one, they agreed that there was one God. And that God was Yahweh, their God. All right, they, they knew that. They also uh, believed and agreed that Israel was the covenant chosen people. All right, that they and they, they the Jews, were the remnant or the part of that um, whole nation that now was in the, the land. And that's where we come to the third thing they could agree on, and that was that the land was theirs. I'm just going to put put the word land there. The land promised to Abraham by God, that whole land that they had occupied under Joshua, that was their land. And it was only when they had full control of that land that they and were free that they could worship the one God in the right way. Now, this is where the, this is where the rub comes in. This is where the problem comes in. And we're going to read about that in chapter 7 as Stephen develops his, his sermon and his address. And all this helps us to kind of understand what he's saying and why he's saying it and why uh, he takes the approach that he did. Because the, the idea that the land was, must be free must be free of Roman control. They wanted the, they, they wanted the Romans out. This is what led to so many different Jewish insurrections in the history of this time. Now, there's one we've already studied. And if you go back to Acts chapter uh, 5, you remember when um, the apostles were before the Sanhedrin again, and this Jewish or Pharisaic, Pharisaic, uh, Pharisee leader, Gamaliel, rabbi, stands up and says, basically, leave these guys alone. If it's of God, you don't want to be fighting against it. If it's of men, it's going to come to nothing. And in verse 37 of chapter 5 of Acts, Gamaliel references a, a person named Judas of Galilee who rose up in the days of the census. Note that, verse 37, in the days of the census. What census? It's the census we just read about in Luke 2, verse 2, the census of Quirinius. 
a Syrian governor. And what happened then, and Luke brings it in, and we know this from, we know that the full story comes from Josephus, not necessarily here, but Josephus tells the story of the rebellion of this Judas from Galilee. Um, he's actually from a, a city of Gambla uh, within Galilee, but he led an insurrection because Judas persuaded enough people who believed that there was one God, Israel was his people, and they were free, and they must have control of the land free of Roman influence to worship God in the right way. This is what is held, held to their, their, their belief. Um, Judas here of, of Gamla or Galilee, he basically said to the rest of the Jews, if you submit to the census, the census if you submit to tax, Roman taxation, if you submit to the Roman governor, that is a sin, a sin against Yahweh and his people in the covenant. This is how fervent they, they, were, they were in their belief. And so he led an insurrection. And, and go back to Acts 5, when Gamaliel brings this up, he said, this man, he rose up in the days of the census, drew away many people, but he also perished. All of uh, who, who obeyed him were dispersed. And that's, that's what happens. And so Gamaliel brings this up. And so it, it's understanding this fervent desire to be rid of the Romans that is the background to what um, Gamaliel said about Judas, even really what um, we find Luke beginning to trace even back in his gospel with the story of Christ and his birth. And now when we come to chapter 7 and what Stephen says, Stephen is going to drill deep into this idea of the land and the, the, the Jewish belief, which um, uh, some, some historians say that this idea of the land created a, a, a kind of a fourth philosophy among the Jews at the time. The other three being that of the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. And we talked about those uh, several times as we've identified the various groups of people or the religious leadership of um, uh, Judea at this time, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Josephus kind of calls it a, a fourth philosophy, and that it would be those that were really the, the rabid uh, insurrectionists uh, like this Judas, Judas of Galilee, who wanted to get rid of the Romans. And this is what will lead in uh, a few years later, in, in the year 66 AD, when the Jewish revolt erupts in Galilee. And Josephus is actually a general at that time, and he's leading a group of Jews against the Rome, Romans. And that ultimately leads to 70 AD with the um, destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Roman legions. Uh, there's another one in the early in the second century, another Jewish revolt that essentially finishes the Jewish presence in the land, but it's all tied back to this idea that the land had to be free. So with that as a background, and it's important in understanding what is being developed here, let's look at what Stephen here begins to talk about. It will help us then to understand why he puts it this way, because Stephen is, is now going to put forth an idea uh, that the land, as important as it is, isn't the critical factor. That God's not tied to any piece of land. God's not tied even to one people necessarily beyond the covenant that he made with, with Abraham. Stephen is beginning to, to uh, help 
or, or through his preaching, say that God's concerned for all people. And he's going to do it by telling the, the story that they really have never thought about of their most revered patriarchs, beginning with Abraham. And he's going to basically show that God's dealt with all of his people apart from the land, the promised land. And it's that lack of discernment that the Jews uh, don't have at this time. And as a result, they couldn't identify Jesus when he was in front of them as the Son of God, and they killed him. And now they are, they are, they are going to kill one of the, the servants in the church because they can't stand this message. And so let's, let's dive into it here as we look at chapter 7. When the high priest said, are these things so? Because the charge is, going back to verse 13 of chapter 6, that this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. All right? And so, uh, you know, that, that gets back to these, these principles that under, uh, undergirded the whole Jewish philosophy at this time. It's not true, but this is the charge that has been presented. Verse 2 now of chapter 7. Stephen says, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, Get out of your country from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. This goes back to Genesis 12. This is a quote in verse 3, right out of Genesis 12, verse 1, where God appeared to Abram and said, get out of the land and go to a place that I will show you. Where was Abram at that time? Well, Abram was way over in Mesopotamia. I don't have that map up on, on the board here today, but he was over in the area of the land between the waters, uh, the area of Babylon, that, 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 uh, that former um, empire there. Uh, that's where he was. He wasn't anywhere near what would become Jerusalem and Judea and the, and the, and the promised land when God appeared to him. And that's the point. That's when God began to work with him. Uh, the idea is, and Stephen is saying, look, God began working with our patriarch, Abraham, when he was in a foreign land, i.e. Gentile land. He was not in a holy place or a holy land, and yet God began to deal with him. That's the point Stephen here is making. And so he says in verse 4, he came out of the land of the Chaldeans, dwelt in Haran, and from there when his father was dead, he moved with him to this, to this land in which you now dwell, which is the promised land, the holy land, uh, Jerusalem, Ju Judea. That's, that's the land. And so he, he, he's, he's tracing history, but he's in big broad strokes. He's jumping uh, uh, really long periods of time here as he moves through his story. Now, understand this about Stephen's sermon. Uh, we, let's just go ahead and call it a sermon. That's what it is. It's an indictment uh, as well. Um, it's a speech. It's a long one. Some, uh, some say I think that, that this is the longest one in the book of, of Acts, uh, but it, it is a sermon that is one for the ages here. Um, in verse 5, then he says, And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on it. But even when Abraham, Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. Remember, um, and when Abraham died, he didn't even have a, have a place to bury his wife Sarah. 
he had to go buy a plot, a, a cave, the cave of Machpelah, and um, uh, in in the area of of, um, of Hebron, uh, south of Jerusalem. And so God spoke in this way in verse six that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for four hundred years. Now that's referring to the foreign land is Egypt. That's the foreign land of, um, of verse 6, Egypt. And that, so he's jumped now from, over, from Abraham over Isaac and to, to the time of Jacob, when Jacob, as you know from the story, goes down to Egypt during the time of famine. Joseph is already there, who's uh, actually the next uh, story we'll talk about here. But um, he, he says, they all, the, the descendants of Abraham, dwelt in a foreign land. They went into bondage and oppression uh, for 400 years. At this point, let me just make a reference here. The, the, there's a reference here to 400 years. Um, it's 430 years back in the book of Exodus. And this is something about Stephen's address that you should know. He is not precise in, year, in years and even in some of the, the chronology here, of, even of, of Abraham. We're not going to go into the details of, of that. Um, you can read about that in a commentary, and commentators try to uh, align and, and make all of, all of this fit. And probably the better one that I, I, I read in looking at different commentators is the idea that don't get hung up on the dates and the, what might be a discrepancy. Luke's not writing that way. And as he writes the, the sermon of Stephen, because again, Luke wasn't there to hear it. It's not a firsthand account. He, had a, he's, he gets it from a later, uh, later from a source who obviously was there. But he, he's, he's again, he's writing in broad strokes here, and he's writing for effect. Um, and it, it's not anything that will discredit the biblical record and the, the truth of Scripture, um, the, the, the events and the people are real. He's writing to a larger lesson, and that's what's critical to understand here. Even in, in this story, there are things that Stephen, that Luke records of Stephen, as we'll see, about Moses that are not found in the Scripture. He got it somewhere else. He may have uh, got it out of Josephus or some other source, and that's legitimate, uh, even if, 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 it's, if it's in the Scriptures, then we will accept it as truth, but recognize that it's not something that you will find elsewhere. We'll, we'll see that when we, when we get to that. Verse 7 then says, And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge. Again, this is Egypt, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Uh, this is, again, recounting the, the prophecy of what would happen to the people and that they would even be returned to this place. And this place is, you know, uh, Judea and the whole, the whole land, um, which they were with Moses and ultimately with Joshua. And verse 8, And then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. This goes back to talking about Abraham. And so Abraham begot Isaac, circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot twelve patriarchs. So it's a history lesson. Uh, this part is, is obviously accurate, and it doesn't do away with any part of the, uh, not only the historical, but in, more importantly, the, 
the spiritual or the theological teaching that would be drawn from the story of Abraham and Moses and the law. Keep in mind that he is being charged with blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. And that's something that, those are fighting words for a Jew in Jerusalem at this point in time. Uh, that is grounds because it, it violates um, everything that, that they, uh, they hold, that, that they agree on, and is at, at the core of the legitimacy of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and this ruling body. And so, yet, he's not contradicted anything. And so, verse 9, so we have Abraham, and he's, he's established the point that Abraham, God began to deal with him before he ever came into the land. The promise, the central core of the promise was made before he came there. And God had, in a sense, plucked Abraham out of that story. If we have time, we'll come back a little bit more and focus on uh, some of the, uh, what, what is marvelous about the story of Abraham. But let's go on. Verse 9, the patriarchs becoming envious sold Joseph into Egypt but God was with him. So now he jumps to the story of Joseph, which every, all of us know the story of Joseph and his uh, amazing technicolor dream coat. Even Broadway uh, and Hollywood knows the story of Joseph uh, today from uh, that production that uh, ran for a long, long time and told the story quite well. But we all know that story. Sold by his brothers into Egyptian slavery. God works with him. He brings him out of prison. He comes up to become the second in command of Pharaoh and uh, is instrumental in not only saving Egypt from death during a famine as he prepared seven years in advance or seven years of famine, he then um, uh, saves his own, his own family, his brothers and, and Jacob who come down. It's a remarkable story. It, it, it's a timeless story. Let's say or a story that is that old to be uh, retold in modern terms of uh, uh, modern culture and entertainment uh, speaks volumes in itself to the, the, the timeless qualities of that story of, of um, interfamily problems, betrayal, redemption. You've got the great themes of any, any novel right there in the story of Joseph, and for many of us probably uh, one of the, the favorite stories there. Verse 10, he says, He delivered him out of all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all of his house. Now again, keep in mind what Stephen is doing is he's, he's now pulled forward the story of Joseph in Egypt of all places, a type of sin and um, the place where, uh, of bondage. And for a Jew in the first century, no worse place to go than Egypt. No worse place to be than that in, that in Egypt. But he's making a point that God can work with anyone anywhere that it is not tied to a piece of property, um, and that the promises are spiritual, eternal, and they transcend ethnicity, they transcend location, and so many of the things that have become a part of the, the Jewish thinking at this time. Verse 11, a famine, great trouble came over the land of Egypt, and Canaan and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent his our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Great story. Just a great story there. 
when Joseph reveals himself to his, um, to his brothers. You read through that story, and, you know, how do you keep a dry eye when you, you, you read through that part of Joseph? I mean, told, told well, told right, it, it, it just it, it grabs your attention, and it, it's so poignant. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all of his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, and he and, his, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem. They come back into the land. Shechem was in the land of the promise, laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. So again, he's, he's tracing the story that they all knew. You, you, you read through this, and you might begin to imagine in your mind, here's if, you know, we've got, what, three... Uh, four rows of students here, and if you were the um, Jewish leadership, and I'm up before you telling a story that you know that you can recite from memory, which they all could, and you know it, and you don't like me, and I'm Stephen, and I'm telling you the story of Abraham and Joseph that you dream about, know about, and can recite from memory. You're sitting there, drumming your fingers. Get get on with your point. You know, we already know this. You know how it is when you've, you've heard a sermon for the fourth time or the idea behind it within a sermon and, oh, I know this. He's going to talk about this today. And we have to, you know, get through our human nature and realize that, yeah, because God knows that we need that sermon for the fourth or fifth time because there's something, some point on prayer or whatever we need to learn. Stephen's got a point for these Jewish leaders and they're probably beginning to get impatient. They're squirming in their chairs. They're, they, they, if they could, they'd look at their watches, and and um, you know, um, you know, they can't look at their smartphones because even the Sanhedrin put their smartphones in a place behind outside the room, right? You didn't know that, did you? Uh, yeah, yeah, they did. So uh, we've got uh, precedent for what we do here at ABC. Um, for those of you online it, here at ABC, we. Uh, have a place outside the room for smartphones so that students uh, are not on them or distracted by them or whatever during during class time. So, but but that comes right here from the Sanhedrin. We we, we discovered that in an in an archaeological dig in 1971. And um, no, just just kidding you here. All right. So verse 17. When the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. And so he's back into that, that story, uh, going, bringing it forward. Till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people, oppressed our forebearers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. And so, again, all drawn from, from Genesis, accurate. At this time, Moses was born. So again, now this is the third character. We've had, we've had Abraham, we've had Joseph, now we have Moses. Abraham born in a foreign land, Joseph sold into a foreign land, and yet God was with him. Now Moses, born in a foreign land, his life is a, 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 a danger. Um, he was well-pleasing to God. He was brought up in his father's house for three months. And at verse 21, it says, when he, was sent, when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And getting into that chronology, I don't know if, as you go through the Pentateuch, how much... Um, Dr. Dunkel takes you through that, but, you know, looking at and trying to 
pull together the chronology of who the, who the Pharaoh was at the time of Moses and the Exodus and who the, his daughter was that is recorded in Scripture. And what she did is an interesting study uh, to, to uh, align that chronology right. And when it's done, it helps to really understand um, a, a lot. And it's not the picture that you get in the Ten Commandments by Cecil B. DeMille's. They put you forward a few hundred years because they date a later exodus there. But that's another story for another time. But what it says in verse 22, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now that's what, that is a point Stephen brings out we do not receive from the story back in Exodus. That's not recorded there. Um, you know, and if, again, if you saw the movie, the Cecil B. DeMille movie of the Ten Commandments, you find that Moses certainly is a son of Pharaoh and part of the court, but he's also a general. Well, that comes out of Josephus. And we take that as true, that, that indeed, as he was raised in the, the household of Pharaoh, he did rise high and was a general of the army. Josephus records those incidents. But the fact, but that, that comes from extra-biblical history. And um, it says that he was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and mighty in words and deeds. I'll just pause and tell you a little bit here, a little bit of background. Um, do you ever go to Egypt? And you need to go to Egypt. And when you go to Egypt, you need to go to, up, up the Nile. And if you, you, girls, if you marry somebody that's got enough money, he'll put you on a boat and you'll sail up the Nile, like something out of an old movie, okay? And you will, you will put in at a place called Karnak, uh, the, and you'll uh, walk through the ancient temple site of Karnak in, in Egypt. It is fabulous. This is where Moses was raised. This is where the pharaohs ruled from, Karnak. And the, the temples of Karnak, uh, the, you know, the ruins are there and they're magnificent. Across the river are the tombs of the kings. Hatshepsut, who could very well be the uh, daughter of Pharaoh that is referenced here in the book. Her tomb, and that's uh, where they discovered King Tut's tomb and all that. That's on the other side. When they take you through there, as they did with the group that I was with back several years ago on a tour, you're going through these what were huge halls and rooms in this, this vast temple complex. I remember the tour guide stopping us at one point. as We were walking through this room as all old stone and, and uh, stone columns. And he showed us a, a spot off, it was to our right as we were walking through, which would have been a large room, second room there. And he said, that is where the children of Pharaoh were taught. In other words, it was a school. And then he said, because we were a, a Christian group being toured by them. He said, that is where Moses would have been taught. And I remember, you know, everybody goes, oh, wow. And snap, snap, snap. You start taking pictures like that. And it's interesting. And I'm, then you walk on and I'm thinking, I wonder if he just told us that because we're a Christian group and he knows that that's going to sell more tours for him and make us happy. And he gets a bigger tip at the end of the tour or if it's really true. Well, it, it's one of those things where it gives you at least a good visual. You don't know if it is or not. It, it could very well be as the Egyptologists identify these ruins and what was there, but it's certainly the temple area 
and it's where the house of the Pharaoh was. Moses would have been a part of that in his day. Would he have been taught in that room? Maybe, maybe not. But again, it just helps you to kind of understand and visualize some of these things. And what, what, what Stephen is saying is that this man Moses, who is a huge giant of a figure then and now in Israelite Jewish world history, he was taught in the schools of the pharaohs. I mean, we, we, we today, we got a lot going on in our public school system, don't we? And a lot of things being taught. A lot of people opt out. They opt for homeschooling. Some of, uh, many of you were homeschooled for many reasons. And we've got you know, some problems today that cause that. But think about going back to this time. Moses, in a sense, homeschooled in the house of the Pharaoh, but it is, what does it say? That he was in, learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. That's not God's truth. That was the wisdom of the Egyptians. Now, they understood astronomy and they understood mathematics. They did build a few buildings that are still around today. You have seen pictures of those. So they knew what they were doing. Um, Moses obviously went on to become the lawgiver and, and, and uh, is anchored in, in the story and, and in history in that way. But again, Stephen's point is that God worked, took this man, he take a, took a detour from his uh, Jewish Hebrew household into the house of a, of a Pharaoh. And when you, again, you, you read about what he would have been brought up around, the religion, the culture, the ideas of the Egyptian Pharaonic household, not nice. Uh, not what we would call Christian, righteous, or anything biblical in that sense. He was learned in all of it, and not all of that is something that we, we would want to carry through. Uh, and so this is in the minds of the, his, the Sanhedrin here, as Stephen gives this address. Uh, they're being reminded of something that, in a sense, they knew, but they... they um, they don't like his point. Maybe by this time now, as he's gone from Moses, uh, Abraham to Joseph, now to Moses, maybe they're beginning to get the point of what he's, he's, his real point is. And they're beginning to get a bit more agitated as they are sitting there listening to what he, what he has to say. Well, he goes on, he says, when he was 40 years old, it came to, into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egypt, uh, struck down the, the Egyptian. That story is told back in, in Exodus. So he jumps to his, you know, he, he tells this story in 40-year increments uh, here. The next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, uh, you, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler? and a judge over us. Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? And again, this is in Stephen's view, as he tells this part of the story, it, 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 the effect again would be that upon the Jewish leadership, they're, being, they're having their nose rubbed into it. That the, the, the Hebrews devolved over a period of time as they were slaves, taking on absorbing habits and, and, and ways uh, that were unrighteous. And 
Stephen's point is going to be that this will happen wherever you are, whoever you are. Again, keep in mind that the idea, uh, one of the things that they all agreed on is that Israel had a covenant with God. They were His special people. And they, the Jews at this time in the first century, were the one remnant holding to that. And they had endured the Greeks. They had endured a Babylonian captivity. And they, they were, uh, in their own form, holding on to it. But they have, they, uh, they have um, a past and, and that isn't commensurate with, with all that they presently held. Verse 29 then, at this saying, Moses fled, became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. And uh, when 40 years had passed, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. So again, we, you know, he jumps forward again to the, the appearance and the time out of Exodus chapter 3, where Moses, as a shepherd, is out looking for some of, of, of his flock, and he comes across this burning bush and has this encounter with God. Now, you'll know from that story that when he even comes upon that, he, what, what is he told? By, by the voice out of the burning bush, which, which is the voice of God. Anybody remember? Remove your shoes. The place on which you stand is holy ground. Well, this is way down in the Sinai, and this is uh, um, what, what is happening here. He brings the story forward. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. He drew near to observe. The voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. And he, the Lord said, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their groaning. I've come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. He has to go back. We know that, that part of the story. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought him out, and he brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. And so he tells the story of the burning bush and the voice from God. And Stephen, in this, uh, um, recounts uh, almost verbatim out, out of the story of of, um, of Exodus. The angel, the word for angel that is used here um, to describe this, this um, angel of the Lord in verse 30 is the word um, angelos, and it means messenger. And it's, it is a word that it can mean an angel, it can mean a, a messenger, and in this case, it, the messenger is God. As, as it says here, you know, in verse 32, he's quoting out of Exodus 3, which very clearly shows that God spoke to him out of that bush, and it is that member of the God family that we understand was the Word who became incarnate as Christ, who dealt with Moses and that, that whole ep episode of the Egyptians. And Stephen affirms it here, and he uses this, the, the word, he's called the angel of the Lord, but it is not speaking in a sense of an angel like a Gabriel or a Michael, as we studied in, in Daniel, but in the sense of the word meaning a messenger. 
which it can which it can mean, and as it, the context helps us to understand how it, it is applied here. Uh, the word, uh, the one who became Christ, then is the messenger uh, through whom all of that was then communicated to Moses and ultimately to the children of Israel. Many other scriptures bring this out. We'll get back into this particular study here um, when we get into the study of the, the nature of God and Christ and the Holy Spirit um, in a few days in, in our Fundamentals of, of Belief class. Uh, we'll touch on, on this once, once again. But um, verse 36 says, He brought them out after He had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. And so He goes on here to, to, to show, verse 37, This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Now he's transitioning here. To, tell, to, to point them to the fact that, again, Moses, born in Egypt, raised in the house of Pharaoh, chosen by God to be the, the great lawgiver and deliverer and the one who brings them to the threshold of the promised land. Um, uh, but again, the point is, God's not tied to any land, and His, His servants can be in and from anywhere that God that can be, that God will choose according to His purpose and His will. And then he says that this is the same Moses that said, I'm going to raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, uh, quoting from Deuteronomy 18, and him you shall hear. Now Stephen's getting down very much to the, uh, uh, the, the, the more pertinent episode for this group of Jews that he's standing before. This is the group who condemned Christ and sent Him to the Romans, who then crucified Him. And they still are not able to see what they did and understand that. Verse 38, this is He who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to Him on Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. They wanted to go back. And they, as you know from the story, they, re they um, rejected Moses and uh, bellyached and uh, criticized him all during that period of time. They wanted to go back to Egypt. Why have you brought us out here to die? They wanted the uh, leeks and garlics and food and, and you know, the certainty of Egyptian, uh, of Egypt, rather than the uncertainty of the wilderness and whatever might lie ahead for them. Um, you know, there's something about Egypt. The Israelites wanted to go back to Egypt because Egypt, at least in their slavery, they knew who they were. They knew that they would eat. They didn't have to walk miles and miles and miles. They, they had water and they had a roof over their head and there was certainty. There's one thing about Egypt, it was certain. Uh, the, whole, the heavens were laid out charted and mapped the seasons, the Nile rose and fell on a regular basis to, to provide uh, the means of an abundant crop. There was a regularity about Egypt that they had grown used to in their 400 plus years. Uh, that's kind of the way the world works and sin works. And uh, sin has a certain certainty to it, even if it's misery at times. 
which is hard, why it's hard for people to come out of sin. And the path that God calls us to is a path of faith. And we, don't all, we, we have the promise out ahead, but we don't always know what we're going to have to go through, just like the Egyptians didn't as they went through their wilderness. We have a spiritual wilderness to go through. And so um, the, the, the Jews that were listening to this were probably, again, just becoming a bit more agitated, and they were being reminded of something like in verse 39, that your fathers would not obey, and they rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back. And these Jewish leaders were probably, you know, beginning now to really, their blood is beginning to boil, and they're thinking, he's talking about us. He's saying that we're disobedient, and we won't obey. And this is the scene now as he's bringing it down to his final conclusion, which we're going to have to stop right now and pick up in the next class, um, and to get to the final uh, punchline of Stephen's sermon. And believe me, it's got a punch to it. So we'll study that next time uh, when we get into class uh, and, and finish on through this and meet um, the man who's going to become the Apostle Paul at the end of the story.